we had noticed a number of news reports of individuals who were going to fight against the Islamic State. And so I'm like, well, why don't we, why don't we dig into it? I think most of them are also motivated by a feeling that there's this really great injustice going on in the world. And, you know, many of them cited watching ISIS videos. Particularly with the Iraqi Peshmerga, they didn't want to, they didn't want a lot of dead Americans on their hands. Um, so they were often just doing guard duty. I don't get the sense that that was the case for the, with the Assyrians and with the Syrian Kurds. They, they were putting them up, up front and, I mean, a number of Americans were killed with, uh, with the YPG. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, we're reaching back into the MWI archives, so to speak, for a conversation we originally recorded about two and a half years ago. In 2014, after ISIS declared the establishment of a caliphate, supporters from all over the world were moving to live under its rule and to fight as part of the organization. But there were also foreigners who went to the Middle East to fight against ISIS, including a number of Americans. Joseph Young and Jason Fritz researched that trend, analyzing anti-ISIS fighters' motivations and some of the tricky legal and policy issues that their situation raised, and it's one of my favorite episodes I've had a chance to record. Before we get to it, a couple quick things. First, be sure you're subscribed to the MWI podcast. It is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, really anywhere you listen to podcasts. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Joseph Young and Jason Fritz. Jason and Joe, thanks so much for taking some time to talk about um, what I personally find a, a fascinating topic, and that's uh, something that you guys have researched and written about uh, uh, Americans that have gone abroad to fight against terrorists. We talk a lot about foreign fighters, and these are foreign fighters, but uh, just kind of on the other side than people normally think about. Um, can one of you kind of, um, Jason, maybe we'll start with you, can you sort of um, describe why this topic attracted your interest in the first place? Well, when Joe and I first started, we were trying to figure out a project to, to work on, and we were really interested in foreign fighters. This was, what, 2000, late 2014, early 2015, uh, and foreign fighters were all the rage, and, but everyone was looking at those that were fighting against the Islamic State. Um, we had noticed a number of news reports of individuals who were going to fight against the Islamic State, uh, and not only did we, well, no one's really studying them, uh, but they weren't being called foreign fighters at the time either. It was vigilante, volunteer, things like this, and so we're like, well, why don't we, why don't we dig into it? That's where it started. And was anybody before this time was there was there any sort of scholarly research written about this? I mean, maybe you know, one or two mass media articles or something every now and then. But was there kind of a methodolo methodological, rigorous approach taken to kind of categorizing this stuff? It was all journalistic. Uh, I think the closest was Nathan Patton did a piece for Bellingcat uh, that was. I would call it quasi-academic, in which he was he laid out the methodology for how he was he was basically taking a census of them, um, but it still wasn't you know f a fully academic study that was based on any sort of theory. Um, there are a few folks that were had been looking at foreign fighters that were f fighting on behalf of other governments in previous conflicts, but but at this time no one no one was looking at this particular population. So what was maybe Joe you can jump in here. What was your goal when you set out? What what did you kind of want to figure out? Well, we wanted to understand motivation, but we also 
we wanted to understand this larger concept of foreign fighting volunteerism that uh, we could hear from the horse's mouth. And one of the reasons why we chose this population instead of the jihadists is what the jihadists are doing is widely considered illegal and they won't talk about it where what these folks are doing is not illegal by our government standards and by most government standards, although this is another side project that, that Jason's working on uh, to look at how there are some governments that make it illegal. Um, but we wanted to, to talk to these guys because it's not, you know, uh, in our country, it's, it's not necessarily even frowned upon. These folks may get visited by the FBI, but um, you know, there aren't going to be charges brought against them, although there recently was a charge brought against uh, a fighter that came back from um, Syria who was British. And um, that's that's more a more recent development there. But again, in our sample, we were only talking to Americans. So how many people, how, how big is the, the universe of, of Westerners and specifically Americans, or maybe both, um, that engaged in this? Well, the, the most recent paper that we had published at Terrorism and Political Violence uh, was through the end of 2015. At that point, there were about 100 Americans. I am given to understand that that number is closer to about 300 right now. Uh, what explains that discrepancy? Well, when the time period we were looking at was the early the early adopters, the, the early um, deployers to, to go uh, engage uh, against the Islamic State. I think, and you know, I our research doesn't support this. This is, this is my speculation here, um, that there was a turn right around when we were stopped collecting sort of broad uh, collection of names, uh, that the U.S. started getting involved militarily, which changed the dynamics of who's joining. Um, what we saw at that point was more uh, Marxist, but I guess is a fair way to describe them. Those that were highlighted in a Rolling Stone article last year um, started going in, in greater numbers than the ones or twos the military veterans that we had been, been tracking. And which the, you know, we initially thought that the folks who were actually going to do this were probably more of the onward Christian soldier types who were going to fight against what they saw, this encroachment of Islamic extremism. And um, that's, we've seen a little of that, but that is not what we saw initially. And then even as it's transformed somewhat, as Jason's saying, that hasn't been um, the primary motivation. And, and in fact, you know, like um, there was a Rolling Stone article and there's been a, um, one person in particular who's been a San Francisco resident who's been identified and is kind of a poster child for this group um, who's attracted and gotten lots of other adherents who want to create this kind of perfect communist style state and believes the Kurds are moving towards that. Uh, to be fair, we did have a couple of guys who were the onward Christian soldier type. So they weren't completely absent. No, but they were, but they were, Joe's right. There were such a small fraction of it. There were these we just, folks. when we started, we sort of assumed that it would, that would be the primary motivation that, you know, most of the folks were looking at that that's what they would either say in newspaper reports or when we talked to them, that would be one of their primary motivations. So it, it was, it wasn't just that uh, they wanted to fight against ISIS. It sounds like they wanted to also fight alongside the Kurds. Um, is that, is that accurate? I mean, was it mainly Kurdish groups that uh, that these these men or men and women were um, were aligning themselves with uh, mostly uh, the 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 Syrian Kurds were probably the, the I would say probably the the largest recipient of these foreign fighters the Iraqi Peshmerga also received some uh, but they were less willing to use them on the battlefield it seems uh, but there was there's an Assyrian group that was also uh, recruiting Americans pretty heavily uh, and, and a good chunk of our sample fought fought with them. So what were some of the motivations? So you, 
I understand conducted interviews with um, with some of these people. Uh, what, what what did they? How did they explain their sort of reasoning behind deciding to leave behind whatever it is they have here and go fight against ISIS? Well, uh, a number of reasons. So we categorized it using. Um, I don't know how wonky you want me to get on this, um, but there was a, there was a book written by uh, I don't know what their first names are, but Macaulay and Moskalenko, mm-hmm. um, and there was, they were looking at radicalization pathways, right? And I'm like, well, these are pretty good descriptors, and there was personal grievance, group grievance. Um, I don't remember all the, the rest of them off the top of my head, but anyway, um, like, well, these all generally explain some of these broad categories of what people are explaining. So to take take some examples. Um, like the personal motivations. A number of the individuals that we've talked to were serving the U.S. military uh, and had deployed to Iraq and or Afghanistan. It seems to us that it was not their choice to leave military service. Uh, and so for them, the, some of them were going over in order to sort of fulfill this hole that was left from not being in military service anymore. Yeah. Um, and, those, and those folks also tended um, to be motivated by a feeling that they had gone into this theater and had accomplished something and then they left and that accomplishment had been, you know, diminished or destroyed and that this was an opportunity to sort of get things right again. That's exactly right. Um, some of them had this, uh, this sense of solidarity with the Kurds and that's, that's what drove them. Um, there's the curious case of the one family in New Jersey where two brothers who were former Marines decided they were going to go and dad who was a former Marine was like, well, if my boys are going, I'm going too. Um, so that one, that one was a bit of an outlier, but you know, so it was a very uh, a broad swath of reasons. But that's also a nice story to illustrate some of the joining of these groups, period, whether we're talking about the um, non-jihadi variety or the jihadi variety, is that people often join with family or loved ones, or that's, you know, and often it's not a solo venture. How much of it was, especially for some of the uh, military veterans, how much of it was sort of thrill-seeking, the same way that, you know, World War II vets came back and bought motorcycles, you know, the stereotype. Um, how much of it was, you know, I really miss being in that sort of deployed environment, being feeling this, you know, sense of brotherhood um, and doing something that you think is meaningful? Uh, I, I mean, some of them explicitly expressed that in our, in our interviews. I mean, I think any of us who were in the military and served in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, one day you do something, it's on the front page of the New York Times, and then you're at home and no one's paying attention anymore. Um, so some of them, th- there was that played a major role. There was one individual, and he gave a number of news reports as well. Uh, he said that he developed PTSD while he was deployed in the army, and he was going back to help cure that PTSD. That maybe if he was seeking more thrills and more danger, it might help him deal with his previous experiences. So I think uh, you you had written that. Um the differences between this group of people and foreign fighters that went and joined ISIS or some other jihadi group uh, are differences of degree, but not in kind. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I think the first piece of it is um, that this tends to be a young man's game, you know, and, and what we know about criminality and, and violence generally is that uh, it's generally, as you were saying before, kind of thrill seeking. Um, that most of our volunteers are young men, uh, the ones that we interviewed. Now, of course, there are other various types, and and that's not a deterministic statement, but sort of on average, uh, most of these folks are similar. And um, 
I think most of them are also motivated by a feeling that there's this really great injustice going on in the world. And you know, many of them cited watching ISIS videos just in the same way that you'll see ISIS folks who will say, I watched videos of Muslims being killed. Um, and so I, I think those are some pretty important similarities. Yeah, I, I mean, demographically, they're, they're, very, they're not very different at all. Uh, the individuals that we've talked to and that we've observed from the news media as well is, you know, they're not unemployed. They're not from you know the bottomest rungs of society. Uh, this is this is something there's something else going on, and it's the stories aren't terribly different, as Joe was saying, from those that uh, have said why they've gone to join the Islamic State. What does you mention a book on pathways of radicalization? Um, in terms of that radicalization and recruitment pattern, from you know just a guy sitting here in the U.S. to fighting. What does that process look like for, for some of these individuals? Who are they? Are there recruiters? Um, are they doing what, you know, jihadis were doing, you know, 10, 15 years ago and just kind of showing up in Syria or, or somewhere in the Levant and saying, like, trying to make contact? Or what is it? Well, it's there's a seem to be a, a set process, but it d- depends on the group and on how it works. But generally, uh, you there are these Facebook pages that you can you can find. Uh, on the different groups, so people would go and visit, and once they show, like, that they're very interested, uh, then they can start taking further steps. We haven't gotten a great sense on how that that process exactly works. Yeah, I mean, just to the extent that um, I think they're, from our understanding, I think they're a little aggre- less aggressive than, let's say, jihadi recruiters. I think a lot of the folks they're generally getting is, you know, there's a website, and one of them, and I don't know if it's still as active, but one that was called Lions of Rojava, it was basically a Facebook page. And you could go onto it. Again, we're not endorsing it, so I'm not. <laughs> but uh, you could go on it and get some more information. Once you made that contact, then you would get, you know, they would sort of hook you up with a group or give you instructions about how to get into Syria. Um, and it was it was often, though, initiated by the person who was interested, not necessarily, you know, as we've seen, this is, a, I think, a good difference, is that among jihadis, you might have had a situation where someone shows up and actually tries to convince you that this is the right thing. And, and how were they getting into Syria? Were they, I mean, following basically the same pathline, flying into Istanbul, you know, driving across country, crossing the border as members of ISIS? I mean, theoretically, a couple guys could be on the same flight and going and fighting against each other? That's quite, that's quite possible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's for the, for those that joined the join the Syrian Kurds. I mean, if for those that were going to in, fight in Iraq, which is, you know, it's less of a, of a battle now, but um, Solomonia seemed to be where both Assyrians and Kurds were, were linking up with, uh, with their foreign fighters. So you just take a plane to Baghdad and then a, a little regional hop flight to Solomonia. It, and it takes some faith on their part because you're getting these instructions from essentially a middleman who's connecting you with a group and the group is saying get into the country however you can and once you get here we'll you know we'll have things for you um so it i'm you know there's uncertainty about it all i wonder if um you know for westerners who went and joined isis a lot of them i mean isis understood there's propaganda value here there's potential operational value of people there so they weren't being put in danger necessarily and there was a lot of disillusionment um, that you could read anecdotally um did you find the same thing in some of these fighters yeah absolutely uh there were particularly with the iraqi peshmerga they didn't want to they didn't want a lot of dead americans on their hands um so they were often just doing guard duty i don't get the sense that that was the case for the with the Assyrians and with the Syrian Kurds, they they were putting them up, up front, and I mean, a number of Americans were killed with uh, with the YPG, 
uh, I don't remember the exact number on, yeah, off uh, the top of your head, but it's 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 not it's small. I want to say like about a dozen, right? Um, but I could be off on that. The I think for for them, and this is like another similarity I think with the jihadi types, is that there's propaganda value for having them in your unit. It's not good when they're dead, right? Um, as a recruitment tool, and and the YPG like most jihadi groups has them film a martyrdom video, and so. Um, you know, that's, that's something they have them do and they, but I don't think they really want to trot that out necessarily. So why did they, the ones that you spoke to, why did they come back? Did they come back because they thought I went and I was planning on staying for a little bit. I did my part now I'm back or did they go and was it out of a sense of disillusionment? Uh, I, th I think that what you're saying before that there's some truth that a lot of them were disillusioned because they did want to be, as Jason was saying before, they wanted to be part of the fight. And if they were, you know, they might get guard duty. They might be driving a truck. Driving a truck was the thing that pissed a lot of people off, actually, from our interviews. They would say, you know, I didn't come here to just sort of shuttle people around. Um, and so, you know, what we've noticed in talking to them is a lot of them go, come back, and then plan on going again and thinking maybe if I get into a different unit, I'll actually get a more plum assignment or I'll be able to do something that's more active. And were there some that had come and gone multiple times? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, quite a few. It, it seems to be pretty standard. And some of them also, they came back because they have families, so they needed to come home and make some money. And some of them got stipends from whatever group they joined, but it wasn't enough to support a family off of. It was barely enough to sustain themselves. Some used a GoFundMe campaign. Yeah. Uh, and, and Successfully? Uh, from what they say, now, you know, I, we didn't verify it. We couldn't actually see whether that, that's how they, how they raised their money. But, I mean, I think um, what we saw, too, is that people would go raise money and then um you know spend all their money and then come home and that that's one of the reasons too that they left did you find um either deliberately or did you just kind of happen across any sort of parallels with historical you know i'm thinking of the spanish civil war um as an obvious example or even you know world war one with americans that fought before the u.s was involved did you find any similarities there or is that not something that you really looked at well we drew on some of the literature that existed on uh, not specifically, well, I guess some Americans who fought uh, with the nascent Israeli uh, Defense Force um, and also uh, a number of Americans and Western Europeans who went to go fight in Croatia in the 1990s as well. Uh, it was a lot of the same motivations because it's, it's a slightly different context than, than many of the foreign fighters. Uh, the Spanish Civil War is probably a good example where you had these like these pro-government non-state groups and that, that they're joining as opposed to a rebel group, which is what we usually think about when we talk about foreign fighters. And, and we were really trying to uh, disentangle the kind of person who goes abroad to fight with not their country, but to make money, right? There's a whole class of those fighters out there. We might call them private military contractors or, you know, there's a, a lot of other terminology someone might use. But our, our feeling is that motivation is much clearer and easier to understand um, versus the folks who are just volunteering. It, for a government that's not theirs, for a country that's not theirs, putting themselves at great harm. And so the examples you were talking about and Jason just mentioned, I think are, are apt comparisons for those exact motivational reasons. You mentioned, Jason, the um, the the early Israeli defense forces. Um, I watched a while back on a plane, actually, a, uh, a documentary about the Israeli air forces and, and U.S. pilots um, and organizations that were literally buying planes, you know, surplus U.S. military planes, getting them over there and then flying them. They, that represented um, a critical gap for Israel. They didn't have planes. They didn't have enough pilots. Um, so they played that role. Did 
um, did any of these Americans Americans that fought make a similar impact? Hey, this is a critical gap that these anti-ISIS fighters need and the Americans can um, bring, you know, technology or, or know-how or anything, or were they just sort of um, cogs? I think the those that were fighting against Islamic State as opposed to joining the Islamic State did make a difference. Um, mostly for the population that we looked at, because so many were military veterans, uh, they came with often combat experience, uh, with combat skills, uh, and, and medical skills, which the Kurds specifically apparently don't train very well. Um, so they were able to actually patch people up uh, on the battlefield. One of the individuals we talked to was an EMT in his, his home life. So he came over with uh, some pretty advanced uh, medical skills and, um, you know, and, and brought a lot of medical equipment with him. Now, did that make a strategic difference like the American pilots in Israel? No. Um, but I would imagine it made some difference on, like, on the battlefield for those small units. And we didn't, uh, we haven't talked to this person. She's outside of our sample, but um, there've been a group of women that from Canada who have volunteered for the YPJ. One of them's a, a former model who's pretty well known, um, and she had had lots of gun training. And, and similarly to what um, Jason was saying, is that you know she probably helped an individual pitched battles, but you know probably didn't turn the, the tide of the conflict. You, you kind of at the beginning of the conversation, you you touched on the legal issues of it. Um, this is something a few years ago. Um, there were people writing about that even people jo- Westerners going to join ISIS in a lot of countries that wasn't illegal. Um, countries have started to kind of change those laws. And in some places, it has been has been illegal. Um, what are the legal issues here? Do is there any likelihood that any of these returned anti-ISIS fighters will face um, you know legal prosecution or anything? I suspect not. Um, I think the only the only possible trap, if you will, uh, is if any of the camps that they went to were too closely related to the PKK, which is a designated foreign terrorist organization, um, which I think is what those two British uh, fighters were were brought on charges for. As long as that didn't happen, I think they're pretty safe. So you haven't seen any sort of movement here to try to, I guess, get a legal handle on this and or even consider it a problem. I mean, I just don't, there hasn't really been awareness of this in the U.S. and and certainly not awareness as a, as a problem. I mean, and, and, you know, the only part of that that makes me kind of uncomfortable is uh, you have people returning who now have decent combat skills. And if they are disillusioned with whatever's happening in the United States, that that could possibly be used, you know, in, in ways that's not going to be helpful to us. So do you think, um, and this is kind of a little bit beyond the scope of, of probably what you had written on, but is this a an issue where circumstances sort of arose where it um, it became attractive uh, and and possible for people to go and and fight, or is this a hey the world is getting smaller, it's easier and cheaper to get to places, and with the internet you're more aware of things that are going on, so this is going to be something that we see on battlefields. Uh, you know, going forward? Well, I, I think we will. I think we'll see it on battlefields going forward just because we've been seeing it on battlefields for, you know, over 100 years. And I think, um, you know, that's why we probably need as a policy, as a country, to sort of decide whether this is appropriate and what are the boundaries of doing it. Um, you know, and, and it may not have a, a huge advantage in terms of um, the battlefield, but I think it has tremendous propaganda value and sort of shows 
um, you know, who's aligned with who and, and where the weight of support is for a particular conflict. I'm not sure, and, and I may be just being a Luddite, but I'm not sure technology has a huge impact on it. Uh, I think it certainly makes things easier and sort of greases wheels. But I think, um, you know, that as long as we've had people, we've had people who've wanted to be adventurous and go fight, and this is an opportunity and the battle, you know, I think the bigger story here is that we've been seeing these really multi-actor conflicts like Syria, which are attracting people from all over the place. And so as we see conflicts like that, we should expect to see this kind of action. Yeah, I agree. Um, what's, what's curious about this particular group of people, though, is like we're not seeing them move around. I think we've had one case of one individual who's reported to have been in Somalia as well fighting against al-Shabaab. But we're not seeing this sort of anti-jihadist foreign fighters like we did with jihadist foreign fighters. Um, so I, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens as as this conflict winds down and, and where these individuals go if they still feel a need to, to go fight somewhere where that somewhere might be. And to touch on one point Joe was making about you know the decision about the U.S. and what to do about this phenomenon, the problem in the U.S. is that the U.S. government is supportive of Americans joining the Israeli Defense Force. Uh, and it's really hard to like carve out the IDF as something that's okay to join, but like you know these these other groups is not being okay. Uh, so unless they're a foreign terrorist organization, you know I'm, I'm not sure how legislatively and policy wise you, you been, begin to parse that out, but it's going to present a problem. So it's really a matter of where you draw the line, right? If you say the IDF is okay, ISIS is not okay, do you draw the line at okay state military, foreign state militaries are okay, and non-state actors are not, or you know, is it is it much narrower? If if the U.S. government has identified a group as a as a foreign terrorist organization, they are uh, prescribed. You can't you can't join them. Um, it seems like kind of a tricky policy question. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to make it. I'm not in charge of making it. I think there's a lots of bad choices. There's probably not a, a perfect one. Um, like Jason was saying, like do you let someone join an allies state led fighting force? Um, but what about the Kurds who are our best allies in fighting ISIS, right? Why not let people join the Kurds? Um, and so you get into these really, um, you, could, you can draw just a strict legal line and say, hey, if you're not a foreign terrorist organization, we're fine with you joining them. Or you could try and draw a more moral line like we're suggesting here where you know joining ISIS is bad, clearly, and joining a group that's fighting ISIS isn't. Um, yeah. Except when that group gets into a fight with our NATO allies in Turkey. And, and then it gets really complicated. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Is that something that you came across? Did any, was there, were there any of the individuals that you spoke to that joined you know, YPG or, or a group that, that we know later did kind of get into it on the ground with Turkey? Uh, at that point, we weren't kind of deeply engaged or they weren't deeply engaged with Turkey. And so it wasn't really an issue. Um, we would need to follow up to sort of see what they've done. Yeah. It would be fascinating given what's going on in, in Efrain right now, uh, yeah. whether or not some of these Americans are. Because there are some Americans there uh, that have made some pretty vocal statements about how they're they're there to, to fight now the, the Turks. Wow. Um, I guess last question, but what in, was there anything else interesting that you concluded by, by doing this research? Was, was there anything that was particularly surprising to you? Well, I, um, one thing that was or is surprising is this very, real variation in legal response, as we've said, uh, we were talking about before. I mean, the U.S. has essentially waved our hands at it and we're fine. The worst thing that kind of can happen to you is that as if the FBI 
catches wind that you're going to go, they'll come talk to you before you go and just sort of walk you through that. Hey, if you go over there and you're captured, you're on your own. It's not on us. Um, but they're not saying don't go and they're not you know, taking passports or those sorts of things where Britain is maybe more of a middle line and then Australia has made it worse than murder. Um, so you can go to prison for, I think, life or at least uh, a very long time for just going and, and fighting with the Kurds. So there is, you know, across countries, there's a very big variation in how they're dealing with it. And, and it'll be nice to know, ultimately, and this is something Jason's working on, is how, does that variation matter? Does it affect, um, you know, future behaviors? I said that was going to be the last question, but I just I have one more. Um, did uh, given the fact that many of these individuals are people with military experience, and given the fact that the U.S. has you know had many many times more service members deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan um, over the past fifteen seventeen years, uh, is this a uniquely American problem? There's been a lot of you know um, sort of digging into the data of foreign fighters to see which countries are producing the most that are going to join ISIS. Um, is this a is this a heavily American problem or are there Australians and Brits and Germans and whoever else that are going and fighting in similar numbers? I think, I mean, because we haven't done a full census of, of other countries, but my impression in talking with some colleagues last week about this is that the U.S. has been by far the greatest contributor. Um, Canada's had quite a few, uh, and for Canada, equally is a lot from what I understand, uh, a lot of military veterans of Afghanistan. Uh, same thing with the UK, since they had a number of service members in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I think Europe's problem with this is a little different from our own. It's smaller numbers, certainly, um, but it, there's a lot of like uh, right-wing extremists who are doing it, as opposed to the individuals we're looking at here in the US. Um, I think there's a Dutch and a German, like entire biker gangs just got up and went. Uh, the English Defense League has been supportive of of sending some of their members over there. So their their situation's a little different than our own. That it seems like some pretty like they're actual extremists that are that are going to fight. Right. The the most famous this this book right here actually by Tim Locks. The most famous volunteer is British, and it's it's not uncommon as as Jason was saying. And I think probably proportionally it's roughly similar. And I, I think also as Jason was saying the having this prior service regardless of where you are and having been in theater and probably having similar feelings that a lot of the Americans we spoke to have that we probably would expect similar outcomes. One of the troubling pieces that Jason was also just mentioning is that we're seeing an uptick in folks entering the Ukraine, uh, Russia debacle, and um, they tend to be more on the far right. And from my reading on this, although we haven't done research on this, they seem to be more of the kind of violent type where you know our people that we've talked to weren't criminals they're not violent they're you know wanting all these other kinds of things but i wouldn't you know if i met them in a bar i wouldn't be scared of them these kind of folks that are going into the ukrainian conflict i think are more a different type and maybe um that's something to watch sounds like maybe a future uh, research project <laughs> and a future podcast episode uh, so we'll be, I'll be back. Um, well, Jason, Joe, thanks so much for, for taking some time. This is a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thanks, John. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you're not already following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to connect with other people with an interest in the topics we cover, and it is a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.